His asking her for a drink has been all but forgotten. This conversation has taken a radical turn. At first, Jesus was thirsty for ordinary water. Now, the woman craves extraordinary water. Of course, how much she understood cannot at this juncture be known. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In last week's podcast, we dealt with Nicodemus's nocturnal conversation with Jesus. That was recounted in John chapter 3. In the very next chapter, Jesus has another conversation, though this one was not planned. This second conversation is narrated in John chapter 4. This material will be treated in two parts. Because of a controversy regarding whether Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist, he had to get out of town for a while. That's in verse 1. For some reason, the Pharisees had heard, incorrectly as it turns out, that Jesus was doing the lion's share of baptizing. But only his disciples were engaging in this practice. It is difficult to know why the Pharisees were upset about this, but apparently to avoid confrontation, Jesus decided to leave Jerusalem and Judea and head north to Galilee. The narrator notes that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. The word suggests something more than following a GPS. Of course, Samaria is inhabited by Samaritans. These are people who had for centuries been accused of not being pure Jews because of past marrying habits. Samaritans thought of themselves as faithful Israelites, but were marginalized by other Jewish groups who thought they had a better claim to be the proper representatives of Israel. In any case, on his way to Galilee, Jesus went smack dab through Samaritan territory. By and by, he arrived at Sychar, a Samaritan town. This place had something of a reputation. Sychar was near a field that the patriarch Jacob had given his favorite son Joseph back in the day. That's in verse 5. As well, in that same field, Jacob's well could be found. Since it was about noon when Jesus got there, he was tired and sat down to rest. That's in verse 6. Of course, being at a well in biblical narratives almost always means something interesting is about to happen. This occasion is no exception. Because his disciples had headed to town to buy something to eat, Jesus was by himself as he rested. At that point, a Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Drawing water at noon was a little unusual, but here she was. That's in verse 7. Jesus then asked her to give him a drink. That question to you and me might seem completely innocuous, but in Jesus' day, eyebrows would have been raised. Casual conversation between a man and woman was certainly not unheard of, but it did stretch convention a little. However, A man and a woman talking to each other was not the only issue when Jesus asked for a drink. 
He was on Samaritan turf, speaking to a Samaritan woman. Many Jews, for religious reasons, avoided even exchanging social niceties with Samaritans. The woman picked up immediately on this dynamic. She wanted to know why Jesus, obviously a Jew, was asking her for a drink. Just in case we miss the significance of her response to Jesus, the narrator lets us know that, quote, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, end of quote. That's in verse 9. At least from a Jewish point of view, this conversation was verging on being unseemly. Clearly, the Samaritan woman was quite aware of the potentially awkward situation. Jesus completely ignored the gist of her question. Instead, he said something baffling. He pointed out that if the woman was aware of God's gift, namely the very one who was asking for a drink, then she would reverse course and ask for her own drink. Were that to happen, she would end up with living water. That's in verse 10. As in the Nicodemus interview that we explored in last week's podcast, the woman is both incredulous about what Jesus had said and also took Jesus' remarks quite literally. She'd all but scoffed that Jesus was offering her water when he had no vessel that would allow him to fetch water. After all, the well is deep. You would need a bucket or large ewer to extract water. This poor Jewish man knows nothing about wells. In the ancient world, drawing water was largely a woman's responsibility. This man's ignorance in offering water when he has no means of retrieving that water is painfully obvious. Men! She then verges on an insult. This so-called living water is simply beyond your grasp since you do not have a receptacle of any kind. That's in verse 11. The woman continues by saying something that indicates she thinks Jesus is being a skosh arrogant. She wants to know if Jesus thinks he is greater than Jacob who originally dug this well, drank from it himself, and was able to give water to his children and his livestock from it. Of course, Jacob was a big deal patriarch in Israel. The phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was familiar to virtually every Jew on the planet. Moreover, it was Jacob whose name God changed into Israel, which became the name of God's chosen people. Jacob was as famous as they come for a Jew, or for that matter, a Samaritan. How does this Jewish man get off saying such outlandish things? He may believe he is greater than Jacob, but he is being delusional. The woman speaks as though she is not only talking to a Jewish man, but a Jewish man whose grasp on reality is a tad precarious. Jesus responds to the woman's charge, howbeit indirectly. Jesus argues that anyone who drinks water from Jacob's well will, in time, become thirsty again. That is the way hydration works, after all. Thirst is perpetual if one does not get enough to drink and have access to water all the time. 
Jesus points out that he is talking about a different sort of water, one that quenches thirst once and for all. Indeed, this water that he has in mind will be perpetual as it creates a veritable spring within a person. That spring will eventuate in eternal life, which in this gospel means a life that does not begin when one dies, but an abundant life that begins in the here and the now. Verse 14. Just as in the Nicodemus interview, the material world gives way to a spiritual world. That is what Jesus signifies when he mentions living water. As it turns out, it has nothing to do with H2O. When Jesus goes in this direction, the Samaritan woman's interest is piqued immediately. She is sufficiently intrigued to ask Jesus for this water about which he had been speaking. His asking her for a drink has been all but forgotten. This conversation has taken a radical turn. At first, Jesus was thirsty for ordinary water. Now, the woman craves extraordinary water. Of course, how much she understood cannot at this juncture be known. Does she think in metaphorical or spiritual terms? Or does she think she has happened on some sort of magician who has access to a completely different kind of water? She seems still to be thinking in exclusively material terms, for when she asks for this extraordinary water, she qualifies her request by saying that having that water means not only that she will no longer be thirsty, but as a bonus she would no longer have to come to the well to draw water. So she is fascinated by Jesus' offer, but does not quite comprehend what he is truly implying. Instead of instructing the woman about the nature of this living water, Jesus changes the subject. Out of the blue, he tells the woman to go fetch her husband. That's in verse 16. He had not even introduced himself or inquired about the woman's name. What does her husband have to do with anything, let alone this conversation? Is Jesus so tired that he cannot stay on subject? As though this was the flow of the conversation, the woman responded that she did not have a husband, as a matter of fact. That's in verse 17. Jesus affirmed the truth of her statement as though he already knew. In fact, Jesus went on, you have had five husbands, and the man with whom you are now living is not legally a husband. That's in verse 18. Jesus' assertion has led commentators over the years to paint the Samaritan woman as having an unsavory past. Having had five husbands and currently living with a man who is not her husband certainly accents a promiscuous past and a dubious present. Often commentators suggest that this poor reputation in the community is what led the woman to go to the well at noon to draw water. She had to avoid the morning crowd and their wagging, gossiping tongues. But is this a fair assessment? In Jesus' time, it was all but impossible for a woman to initiate a divorce. Plus, once one was divorced, a woman was put in an economically vulnerable position. 
it is just as likely to conclude that the woman's having had five husbands was a way of saying that she did not have much choice given her financial situation. This would be compounded especially if she had no adult children, especially sons, to care for her. Perhaps her previous husbands had died. At least we need to be careful about rushing to judgment about how she was trying to manage. Jesus does seem to be censorious about the woman's marital history, but we not supply the salacious details. In any case, the woman affirms that Jesus was correct about her, something she reveals when she supposes that he must be a prophet. That's in verse 19. On occasion, prophets know things about circumstances or people to which ordinary people are not privy. Seizing on her belief that she is now in the presence of a prophet, she changes the subject herself. Why waste an opportunity to discuss a little theology with a bona fide prophet? She might never have such an opportunity again. So, she broaches a subject that Jews and Samaritans disputed, namely, the proper site for worship. She noted that Samaritans worship on this mountain, meaning a mountain in Samaria, whereas Jews think the only legitimate place to worship is Jerusalem. That's in verse 20. If the woman figured that she would settle this matter once and for all, she will be disappointed. Jesus said that both Samaritans, that of the Jews and that of the Samaritans, are quite beside the point. The time was coming, Jesus claimed, when neither worship exclusively in Samaria nor exclusively in Jerusalem would be the issue. That's in verse 21. Of course, Jesus did not shrink from insisting that Jewish worship was a matter of divine revelation. Quote, unquote, we worship what we know in verse 22. For Jesus, the Jewish scriptures attest that, quote, unquote, salvation is from the Jews a phrase that underscores Israel's story in Jesus' Bible, which the Christians eventually will call the Old Testament. That means that in time, people will worship the Father in spirit and truth, regardless of where they are. That's in verse 23. Since God is spirit, the location of the worship site will simply become immaterial. Verse 24. As this theological discourse deepens, the woman brings up another issue. Israel's anointed one, the Messiah in Hebrew or in Greek, Christ. Verse 25. Without saying whether she agrees with what Jesus had just said, she calls attention to the fact that when Israel's Messiah arrives, he will settle all theological disputes. When he comes, she argues, he will show us all things. Jesus does not disagree with her, but what he does say is astounding. I who speak to you am he. That's in verse 26. Incredibly, Jesus, this thirsty Jewish man, asking for a drink and engaging a Samaritan woman in conversation, blurts out, that he just happens to be 
Israel's Messiah or Christ. Before the woman has a chance to respond to this stunning statement, the disciples, who had been in town buying lunch, returned. That's in verse 27. Maddeningly, they interrupt this fascinating conversation. We were on the edge of our seats, waiting for the woman to absorb what Jesus had just said. The disciples ruin the moment. They marveled, though not that Jesus had just introduced himself as Israel's Messiah, just in case they were in time to hear him say that. Instead, they were amazed that he was talking to a woman. It was this unstated social convention that grabbed their attention. At the same time, none of them had the temerity to ask Jesus about this. They just gawked silently at the scene. Promptly, the woman left, returned to her town, and said to the menfolk, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's in verse 28. There is a reason I translate menfolk at this point. Greek anthropos often is used generically, indicating both men and women. But in this instance, I think it is more likely limited to males. That is, not only did the Samaritan woman at the well break convention by talking to a Jewish man, but she continued that pattern of breaking convention by speaking to the men in her town. Ironically, this underscores a feminist stance even better than translating with the generic people. One way or another, however, she testified to what had happened at the well. She concluded that she had found the Messiah in this strange Jewish man. The men did not dismiss her out of hand. To the contrary, they dashed out of town to see this man for themselves. One more detail should be mentioned. When the Samaritan woman departed from the well, she left behind her water jar. That's in verse 28. Why is this detail important? It may simply suggest that the woman was so excited about her conversation and the possible identity of this man that she forgot her jug. Or, had she finally figured out the essence of what Jesus had said about living water, the very water she desperately craved. That is, did the woman finally conclude that she no longer needed a water jar? She now had the living water that would spring internally to eternal life. At least the text tantalizes us in letting us know that she left her water jar behind. We will continue this story in next week's podcast. For now, let me once again encourage you to go to my website, faspina.com, and record your email for me so that I can contact you when we are ready for our mini-courses. And if you have any questions you would like me to address in a subsequent question and answer period, text me at fspina106 at gmail.com. Thank you. 
I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.